So folks, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I would uh, invite you to open it to that passage of Scripture that we read in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> now, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that everyone here will know what a tweet is. You know what a tweet is? Well, for anyone who doesn't, a tweet is a short, concise, uh, snappy statement of uh, up to 140 characters that is uploaded to the internet microblogging site Twitter. So a tweet is a short, uh, concise statement. And apparently, the uh, most memorable tweet of last year, of 2011, was tweeted on the, uh, the 1st of May, in the early hours of the morning. And it was tweeted by a, a bloke called Shoab Athar. And he wrote this. He wrote, A helicopter hovering above a Botabad at 1am is a rare event. And of course, what Mr. Athar didn't realize was that he was tweeting about the American raid that led to the uh, the death, the capture of, of, of Osama bin Laden. So that was the, the most important tweet of 2011, apparently. But what if Christians were to tweet? What if the great uh, theologians of the last 2,000 years, what if they had had access to Twitter? What sort of things would they have written? What about Luther? probably wouldn't be repeatable if he'd had Twitter. But Calvin or, uh, let's say, Augustine or Spurgeon, maybe. Or what about uh, even Martin Lloyd-Jones? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this verse that we're looking at today, verse 8, he said that this was the greatest concise doctrinal statement in the whole of Ephesians. And I reckon that's the sort of thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones would have tweeted. He would have tweeted this verse. And in amongst all the rubbish and nonsense that is on the internet, and in amongst all the nonsense on Twitter, what what a refreshing change, a beam of light that would be if somebody tweeted, for it is by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Is that not one of the greatest concise statements that has ever been made by anyone at any point in history? It is by grace, by grace that you have been saved. Now, for... Uh, as Romans was uh, last Sunday morning, so Ephesians is a letter written to a church by the Apostle Paul. And he writes, he writes not to tackle any error, really. He doesn't write to tackle some theological danger or problem head on as he does in other letters. He writes Ephesians to encourage the Christians in that church to live 
godly lives. And he does this, firstly, by kind of uh, providing a doctrinal platform in the first couple of chapters. And then he goes on in the the letter later on to, to delve into more practical applications. But in chapter 2, in this passage that you and I have read just now, um, we've got material here that is perfect for this series that we're looking at, the attributes of God. It's absolutely perfect for this series. So let's look at this chapter, this passage, and let's consider, just for a short while this morning, let's consider the grace of God. Okay? The grace of God. And we'll do so by looking at four headings. Four headings. And the first is this. Point one, our need for grace. Our need for grace. Now, just as when a person is diagnosed with a a, a serious uh, or critical or life-threatening illness, their next logical step is to search for a cure. So today we're kind of moving on from where we were last week. So were you here last Sunday morning? Well, if so, I hope you remember that we were looking at the wrath of God at sin. We examined mankind. We examined our status and we found that we are all ill. That we have contracted from Adam the disease of inherent sin. But today we move on from that. Today, the next logical step is to consider a cure to that disease. And that's what Paul does in Ephesians 2. He sets out a cure, a cure to that disease. But before he does that, before he gets to the cure, what Paul does is reiterate just how serious this disease of sin is. So what does he say about that? What does he say about our need? What does he say about our standing before God in our original state? Well, I don't know, friends, you you may or may not have been to Paris. If you haven't and you get the opportunity, grab it. Paris is a very cool place. And I was in Paris um, a couple of years ago, and I remember... Uh, walking through the Louvre there, and I, um, I walked through the, the part of it that's dedicated to early Dutch painters. And I remember being staggered by that, and by really being quite taken aback by just how brutal some of these paintings were. Some of these paintings were really, really grim. They dealt with some really quite nasty scenes. But none of that compares with this dark picture that Paul paints at the beginning of Ephesians 2. Because just look at verse 1. Just look at verse 1 with me and note the really bleak, stark phrase that he says there. He speaks to the Christians in verse 1 and he says, You were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and your sins. You see, friends, this disease we're talking about, this disease of inherent sin, 
unless it is changed by grace, it is so severe that we are dead. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. So let's, let's flesh that out a wee bit. Let's think about that for a moment. What does it mean to be dead in our sins? Well, it means a couple of things. It means, obviously, that um, if we're dead in our sins, that we are spiritually lifeless. There is no spiritual life in us whatsoever. We're spiritually deceased, if you like. And a second thing it means to be dead in sin, it means, well, if you're physically dead, you cannot talk or communicate with the living. And if you are spiritually dead, it means you cannot talk or communicate with God. If you are dead in sin, you cannot restore your relationship with the God who is living. And then note this as well. You see, although Paul says in verse 1, he's very direct, isn't he? He says to the Ephesians, you, you were dead. He points to them. He says, you But then he changes it later on in verse 3, doesn't he? He alters it a wee bit in verse 3, and and he doesn't say you. He says, we. We were, by nature, objects of wrath. So do you get it? It's very similar to what we were looking at last week. This spiritual lifelessness, this disease of sin, It affects everyone. There is not one person alive on this planet today. There is not one. The starting point is we are all dead. We are dead in sin. So point one, Paul shows our need, our need for grace. So let's move on. Let's consider a second Heading, and that is a definition of grace. We've seen our need for grace now, a definition of grace. Um, Now, if we uh, were to switch on our TVs this week, we would see that there are many um, contentious political issues on the news uh, just now. There is uh, Big Boris's desire for a an airport in this part of the world, a very contentious issue. There is the, uh, the fallout or the aftermath of the Levison uh, inquiry or report into press standards. And last week, I think there was this uh, contentious issue of the Labour Control Council taking away children from their adoptive parents because the parents voted UKIP. So there's, there's many various contentious issues out there. But one of the most controversial issues, one of the most contentious issues, certainly from a human rights point of view, is whether prisoners should be allowed to vote. Isn't it? Should people, because they've committed a crime, should the right to vote be lifted from them? Should they be allowed to determine which political party should be in power. Now, what we think about that, 
doesn't really matter just now. But it does provide for us a helpful and a useful illustration when we come to consider a definition of grace. Because what does grace mean? I'm sure that there's many people who have, have spent their lives growing up in churches and week by week, Almost day to day, we we hear this word, grace, grace, God's grace. But what does it mean? Well, please hear this. Please hear this. Grace is unmerited divine favor. Grace is unmerited divine favor. Favor. It is blessing being shown to the undeserving. It is God's goodness showering benefits people who are absolutely unworthy. You see, grace, grace is lavishing blessing on the most guilty prisoner on death row. See, this guy in death row, he is guilty. He's committed that crime. He's confessed to his crime. He is under the sentence of death. But instead of being executed, instead of being killed, this man, he is immediately pardoned. He is then dressed uh, head to toe in lavish, luxurious garments, the garments of a king. He is hoisted up on people's shoulders and he is led out of that prison. In glory, he is led out from prison to the most incredible, amazing palace. You see, the guy, he's not worthy of any of that. He is a murderer. But it is blessing upon the unjust and undeserved. His his status is changed. Grace is unmerited divine favor, unmerited divine favor. So we've seen our need for grace. We've seen a definition for grace. And then let's look at a third thing, salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. I don't know if it's your sort of thing or not, but uh, perhaps you saw the photos that were sent back um, from Mars, the photos a couple of months ago sent back by the, the NASA Curiosity mission. I thought those pictures were astounding, really. They were absolutely fascinating photographs. And these pictures, they're said to be incredibly important because apparently uh, they show the possibility that water once flowed on Mars, and therefore they're important because they also raise the possibility that life in some form existed on Mars. You see, people say that if there is water, then there's a possibility of life. That water is the key ingredient to life. Water the key ingredient to life. And that, that same principle is evident in Ephesians 
chapter 2. Because without the key ingredient, there can be no spiritual life. No spiritual life. So what is the key ingredient? Well, we are as dry and as dead and as lifeless as the, the surface of Mars unless God acts by grace. He acts by grace. And friends, I don't know where you are spiritually today. You may well be searching and, and questioning the, the big questions in life. And you can try Buddhism, you know, you can try Sikhism or whatever it is, Hinduism or yoga, you know, try that. Or you can try just living for the common good of man. But I tell you, there is only one thing that will provide spiritual life. There is only one thing that will restore your relationship to God. And that is grace. It's grace. Grace is the key ingredient to spiritual life. There's nothing else that can do it. We are saved by grace. And we are saved by grace alone. And we see just how that grace comes in this passage of scripture. You see how it comes. Because we see here something very, very crucial, very important, and that is that Christ is the only channel of redemptive grace. He's the only channel of grace, the only conduit, you know, the only uh, medium of God's grace. Because look at verse 7. What does Paul say in verse 7 about how grace comes? But the only channel of God's grace. Well, he says his grace, God's grace, expressed in the kindness, in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Grace comes only through Christ. And that's always been the case. You know, even in the Old Testament, you know, even if you think back to these, these great guys of old, you know, Abraham, Moses, Job, they were rendered holy, not because they obeyed the law. They were rendered holy because they looked forward to the coming king. They looked forward to Christ. And they put their faith in the grace that is found in him. And there's a cracking quote, okay? There's a great quote that sums this up, that Christ is the only channel of God's grace And it's by a guy called A.W. Tozer. I'm sure some of you have, have heard of him. He sums it up. He says this. Paul never disassociates God's grace from God's crucified son. I'll say that again. Paul never disassociates God's grace from God's crucified son. Do you get it? You can forget Buddhism. You can forget Hinduism or anything else. Salvation comes in no one else. Salvation is found in no one else. It is Christ and he alone as the channel 
of God's grace. But if that's the case, okay, if spiritual life only comes to grace, and if that grace only comes to Je- comes through Jesus, then what do we what do we do? Where where do we stand? If we are made alive by grace, what do we do to be saved? What do we do to be saved? Well, we see the answer to that in verse eight. In verse eight, and Paul expresses himself here first positively and then negatively because he says in verse 8 that our salvation comes how through faith in god's grace as demonstrated in christ and then negatively get this negatively he says and this is not from yourselves it is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. You see, unlike all other religions that were mentioned, unlike all other religions under the sun, the message of the Bible is that to receive eternal life, to receive the spiritual life, we have to do what? We have to do nothing. We have to do Nothing. We don't have to pray a certain time every day. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage. We don't have to confess what we've done wrong to another human being. We don't have to give a certain proportion of our, of our, our, our money to, to charity. We have to do nothing. All we have to do is trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And Paul bangs on about this all the time. He's so passionate about it. He's so passionate that salvation isn't dependent on ourselves. And he's so passionate about it that look what he does. He immediately repeats himself. He says, verse 8, you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. And then next verse, immediately he says, not by works. Not by works, so that no one can boast. This is not by ourselves. God has provided the means for our salvation through grace, through Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is believe. Now, isn't that simple? No wonder it is called the good news. And did you see what Paul calls salvation in verse 8? Did you see what he says there at the end of verse 8? What does he call salvation? Paul calls salvation a gift. And as uh, countless other people before me have pointed out, just because it is a free gift doesn't mean that it wasn't costly yeah it is a gift and salvation is freely available but it cost Jesus Christ his life salvation is from God and yes 
It is a gift. It is the ultimate act of grace. Salvation is the ultimate act of unmerited divine favor. So we've seen our need. We've seen a definition. We've seen salvation by grace. And we close by just considering some of the results of grace. Okay? The results of grace. You know, what happens to us if we're shown this unmerited divine favor? What happens to us? What are the effects of this grace? We see them very clearly in verse 5 and 6. Paul tells us a few things, doesn't he? He says that through grace we are, what does it say? He says we are made alive with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. And then he says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So essentially he's saying that though we were formerly dead, Through this grace, we can be made alive. That we can be given everlasting life in Jesus Christ and be seated with our Lord. But it reads kind of strangely, doesn't it? Is it not a bit weird what he says and how he says it? Because just look at the tense that he uses. Because he says, God has made us alive. He says, God has raised us up. He says, God has already seated us with Christ. Now, should that not be in the future tense? You know, if we're Christians, will it not be in the future that we're raised up and seated with Jesus Christ? Will not that not happen once we're dead? Why is it in the past tense? Why is it not in the future tense? Well, it's because the results of God's grace are absolute certainties, folks. Because once our hearts have been touched by grace, there's no future kind of ambiguity. Our future is not uncertain. You see, once we are touched by grace, we we are God's. We are God's possession, regardless of what happens. Regardless of what happens in the future. We are already by grace made alive. We are already by grace seated with Jesus Christ. Oh, good news. So as we end, just just let me ask you, what do you think of this stuff? You know, do you think this is nonsense? Do you think, well, that's all right for everyone else in this room, but not for me? You know, do you think, well, the things that I've done in my life, there's no way this is applicable. Do you think I am too wicked? I am far too evil. I have done too many bad things to be touched by God's grace. Well, if you're thinking like that, remember this. Grace is an attribute of God. And what is true of his attributes is true of himself. And God is eternal. And God is infinite. And that means that his grace 
is also infinite. There is nothing that you could have done. There is no sin that you could have done that cannot be touched by the grace of God. You see, Paul says elsewhere, he says this in Romans. He says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So do you see, no matter, friend, what it is you have done, God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Now, what did we start the sermon with? We started with Twitter. Okay? So let's end with Facebook. Okay? And I read this on Facebook this week. It said this. Do you believe that you are too sinful for grace? Do you believe that? Well, Noah was a drunk. David had an affair. Jonah ran from God. Moses, he was disobedient. Thomas, well, he was a doubter. Paul, well, he was a murderer. And Lazarus, well, Lazarus was dead. Friends, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter what sin you have committed, God's grace is sufficient. And he stands today offering you the gift of spiritual life. So are you really going to turn that down? Let's pray.